So good morning, Christ Church family. Hey, if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you would come and uh, share this time together with us in our live stream service. And, you know, over the last several weeks, we've been in a series together in the book of Psalms entitled uh, Centered in the Chaos. And this morning, we're actually going to be taking a break from that series. And I just kind of felt compelled to speak with you today about what's happening right now in our culture. You know, I was, uh, I was talking with a friend a while back, and she mentioned that uh, the word unprecedented is the most overused word in 2020. And I think that's because all of us have, have like been reaching for a term to describe kind of what's happening right now, you know? And, and of course, with the coronavirus and with uh, global shutdowns and with our experience, a lot of us have been experiencing things over the last couple of months that we have never experienced in our life, and it truly is unprecedented. Well, over the last week and a half, unprecedented uh, took to a whole new level. And over the last week, we saw protests in all 50 states. Uh, There were protests in over 18 countries. And again, that is unprecedented, unheard of. And we are truly living through something that I think most of us never really imagined. And I think like with the way the news cycle goes, uh, I kind of wonder like, you know, um, uh, you know, what is coronavirus anymore? You know, Uh, it's like everything has now been occupied with all the protests and everything that's happening there. And so I just wanted to pause and I just want to talk to you about kind of where we are at right now in this cultural moment. And I want to share with you a concern that I have on my heart. And you know, one of my deep concerns about what's happening right now, and, and it, it was a deep concern about coronavirus as well, and it's simply this, you know, in our polarized, in our politicized culture, uh, the danger is, is that these events also become very polarized. And you find yourself uh, either having to line up on the progressive left or with the conservative right, uh, with the Democrats or the Republicans, with the blue states or the red states or whatever, and you find yourself kind of pigeonholed in one position or the other, and what can happen is in families and in relationships, you can have conversations with people, and if somebody is not, you know, kind of lining up on your opinion and where you're at, it can create division. It can create division in families. It can create division in churches. And uh, what I want to share with you is a word that I believe will unite us together. And so I want to speak with you a little bit uh, from uh, uh, Micah chapter 6, a word that I think will will unite us together during these times. Now, I just want to be clear. My intention in talking to you this morning is not to get political. I, I don't want us to get political. I want to be biblical, In fact, the Bible says that we are not to be conformed to this world. And I think sadly, uh, what many of us are doing is is, is our hearts and our minds are simply being conformed to the voices, the talking heads on our newsfeed or our social media or on CNN or Fox News or the New York Times or whatever it is. And we're simply being conformed in our thinking about the events around us by the voices that are strongest that we drink from or that we listen to. But what we want to do this morning is we want to attend to the strong and the powerful voice of God as it comes to us in Micah chapter 6. 
And in this passage, God reveals to us what our posture should be in this cultural moment. He tells us what we should be about right now. You know, some of us are confused and we've got conflicted emotions, you know. On on the one hand, you know, we're kind of looking at what's happening around and there's something that's kind of inspiring about people standing up against racial injustice and for racial healing. But then on the other hand, you know, it's like we see these images of, of buildings and businesses being torn and police officers under fire. And uh, many of us are concerned about those realities and we find ourselves kind of conflicted. And in the midst of it all, we kind of wonder like, what's the posture of a Christian in the midst of all of this? We're here, Micah 6 reveals to us what our posture should be. He calls us very specifically to a way of being in the world right now that all of us ought to embrace and embody. And so... Uh, what, it, what is called for is found in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And many of you will know this passage. Uh, there was a song uh, created from it back in the uh, 70s and 80s. You know, he has shown thee, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And I remember when I was a kid singing this, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, if you're, you know, over probably 40 or maybe 50, you know that one. If you're not, well, you know... Um, you probably didn't miss out on much. But, um, but many of you are familiar with this verse. You're not as familiar with the context. And so what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through this passage. And it's a call, of course, to practice justice. He says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And so we want to kind of like explore this call to do justice in the world. And what does that even mean for us today? But to kind of get there, we're going to walk through the text and then I want to stand back and I want to make three observations. We're going to learn three things that he teaches us about justice. And notice the passage begins with a question, verse six. He says this, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Now in context here, God has put Israel on trial. God is the judge and prosecutor of the mountains and the hills are called as the jury. And Israel is indicted before the face of God for her wrongdoing. And what happens when you're in a relationship with somebody and you do something wrong? Well, often what happens is you want to make amends. You want to make it right. And so if you have a significant other and you've hurt them, you know, you missed a birthday or whatever, what do you do? Well, you try to come up with the biggest, the best gift possible that you can go and give to them in order to appease, you know, the wrongdoing. And that's what Israel is doing before God. They're saying, look, we've wronged God. God, what should we do in order to appease you? God, what kind of gift do you want? What kind of gift should we bring you? And look at what it says, verse six, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Uh, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give to, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now stop there. So it's interesting, there is, uh, uh, there's an intensification of the gifts he is intending to bring. He starts out with a calf, which was the most expensive and tender of all meats in the ancient world. And he said, shall I bring you a calf? And then he intensifies it. He says, no, shall I bring you a thousand rams, which is, of course, much greater. 
And then he says, no, no, no. Shall I bring you 10,000 of rivers of oil, which was uh, the essentially, it would be an endless supply of oil, which was commodity in the ancient world. So he's talking about billions and billions of dollars. He says, God, will that make it up to you? Will you be happy then? Will I satisfy your wrath? You know. And then he says, God, what if I were to give you the very firstborn? He says, this is the very ratchet. He ratchets it up to the very top. What if I were to give you my firstborn? That what if I were to cause myself the deepest and most intense pain possible, the loss of my firstborn? And what he's doing is what everyone else in his world would be doing. He was seeking a way to appease the anger of God. And in the ancient world, this is what uh, the, the, the pagan religions were always trying to do. You know, if the crops went bad, the gods were angry. You know, if there was an earthquake, the gods were angry. If there was a, a volcano, the gods were angry. And so you must do something to appease the god. And so they were always uh, bringing to the gods their sacrifices. And they were trying to give them a better sacrifice. And, and Israel here is saying, look, can we play the same game, God? What kind of sacrifice do you want me to bring to you? It'll get bigger and better with each time. But notice what God says. Verse eight, God says, I don't play that game. I don't want your sacrifice. I have everything I need. I don't need you to bring me a billion dollars. I don't need 10,000 you know, rivers of oil or a thousand rams or your firstborn. As a matter of fact, God says, what you need is the sacrifice that I will give to you. I'm not a God who is demanding you to make up for all the wrong things you've done to me. You can't do that. I'm a God who actually reconciles a broken relationship that we have. And I take care of your wrongs by my own sacrificial giving to you, which of course is what God does in Jesus Christ on the cross. But he says, instead, here is what I'm asking for. It's as if God would say to you and I in this cultural moment as we are watching the news and our minds are clouded and we're hearing all kinds of voices and we're like, what does God want from us in this moment? What is he calling his church into in this time and place? And he says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? And here it is, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, Christ Church family, this is what God is calling us into. He says, do justice. Uh, that word, do justice, in some of your Bibles is translated practice justice. And you think about if you're trying to learn the piano or the guitar, uh, you got to practice. You got to go back to doing it day by day by day. And here's what God is saying to you and I. He's saying, look, get off your phones uh, get off the screens, stop entertaining yourself to death, stop being absorbed in your own little world and be a people that day by day practices justice, do justice. But what does that mean? What is the Bible speaking of when it's calling us into the practice of justice? What is it speaking of anyway? Well, that's the question I kind of want to explore with you in our closing minutes here together. And I want you to see three angles uh, kind of on a biblical theology of justice. Now, there's so much we could say about justice, but we're going to limit it to these three things. And number one, I want you to see the fulsome meaning of justice. Secondly, we'll see something about uh, the, the tight partner with justice. And then finally, the power that we can 
cling to in order to have the strength to engage in a life of justice. And so let's begin first by talking together about the fulsome meaning of justice. Uh, notice back at the text, he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? And he says, but to do justice. Uh, that word justice in the Hebrew is the word mishpat. And it can be translated sometimes as law or rule. And the Old Testament uses this word over 200 times. It's a big deal in the Old Testament. And, and the Bible has a whole lot to say about this concept of justice. And according to the Bible, as you kind of like read through, especially the Old Testament scriptures, what you discern is that number one, justice involves, and number one involves equal treatment for all. Justice involves equal treatment for all. And so, for example, in Leviticus 24, verse 22, uh, the writer puts it like this. He says, you should have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord, your God. It's interesting because this is a book of laws. And here he clarifies, look, I want you to know as you are working for justice in your society, I want all people, whether they're foreigners or they are uh, native born, they should all be treated equally and fairly underneath my law. So he is calling here for equal treatment for all under his law. And he puts it even more provocatively in Isaiah chapter 58 in verse seven. He says this, uh, this is the text where he says, this is not the fast I've chosen. He says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the wanderer into your house? That word wanderer could be translated as refugee. He says, and when you see the naked to clothe them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and blood. And here's what I want you to point, I want to point out to you is he is connecting together ourselves with those who are wanderers or refugees uh, who are from another country who come to our, maybe they're not citizens or what. He says, they are your own flesh and blood. He's saying, they are a part of the human family created by God. Now, there's a lot of reasons why the Bible says that we should treat each other equally underneath the law. And one of the reasons is, is because all human beings are created in the image of God. You know, in the ancient world, it was among all of kind of the pagan religions, it was only the king who was said to be in the image of God. But Israel's uh, ancient sacred text turns that on its head and he says, look, it's not just the wealthy, it's not just the powerful who bear the image of God, but all people in all places are image bearers. And so they should all be treated equally underneath God's law. And then he, he, he adds another reason in the Old Testament. He says, not only are, are you all created in God's image, but, but, but he later says in the book of Exodus, he says, you were once a foreigner in a strange land and people mistreated you there. So when, when, when you have your own land and a foreigner comes in your land, don't return that kind of evil for evil, but treat them like your own flesh and blood. And so here, justice in the Old Testament means equal treatment under the law. And so, of course, to be a people of justice in our world today, it means to work for and to fight for the equal treatment of all people under the law. We want to see the equal treatment of all. But then he doesn't just say that people should be treated equally under the law. For, for the Bible, uh, justice actually means going beyond equal treatment. And it means, secondly, it means advocacy. 
In other words, you don't just treat uh, whether foreigner or native born or rich or poor, you don't just all treat them the same. He says you need to go beyond that and you need to advocate on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. Proverbs 31 verse eight and nine puts it like this. Speak up for the rights of the destitute. Speak up, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor. And then in Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, he puts it like this. He says, administer true justice and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. You know, there's this uh, quadrilateral of people groups that throughout the Old Testament, again and again, uh, the people of God are called to advocate for. It's the widow, it's the fatherless, it's the refugee, and it's the poor. And why do they advocate for those people? It's because those people cannot advocate for themselves. They don't have the same power. They don't have the same wealth. They don't have the same influence. They don't have the same means. And so it's not enough just to treat them equally under the law. You actually need to speak up on their behalf and advocate for them. You know, uh, this is not charity, it's advocacy. It's not just helping them, it's not just doing token charity, but it's showing special concern. And the reason for this is just fascinating in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bible actually says in Proverbs 14, God says, if you insult the poor, you insult me. In Proverbs 19, he says, if you give to the poor, you give to me. And do you see what he's doing? He is taking on solidarity with the poor. And he's telling his people, look, if you are oppressing the poor, he says, I am connected my heart with them and you're oppressing me. If you give generously to the poor, you are giving generously to me. And of course, Jesus picked up on this in Matthew 25 when he said those, those unforgettable words, and as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. God connects his heart with the poor in a special way. There's this great story in the Old Testament where uh, 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 Naaman comes to the king of Israel and he's struck with leprosy and he goes to the king because he heard that there's a God in Israel who can heal people's sickness. And he goes to the king and he says, look, he says, uh, king, I got some money. Here it is. Now give me my miracle. And the king tore his clothes and he says, that may be how it works in your land, but that's not how it works in the land of the God of Israel. I don't carry his power. And he sends him down to the river, this dirty old river. And it's as if the king is saying, look, that's not how things work in God's land. God identifies not with the people on top. He identifies with the people on the bottom. And so he says, I show special concern for the poor and the marginalized, and so should my people. And so justice involves equal treatment under the law. It involves the advocacy of those who are on the margins and who can't speak up for themselves. You know, over this last week, I watched the movie Just Mercy. And I would encourage you to watch this. It's a great film about a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who steps into the deep South in the 80s and starts fighting for the rights of those who have been unjustly incarcerated and oftentimes put on death row. And they have no power, they have no resources. They cannot speak for themselves. And he steps in the gap and he becomes an advocate for them. And that's the kind of thing that God is speaking of here. 
He's saying, look, this is what my people should be about, working for the equal treatment under the law, advocating for those uh, who, who can't advocate for themselves. But thirdly, justice is also relational. Justice means relationship. Notice back in the text, he says, but do justice and love mercy. You see that word mercy? In some Bibles, it's translated kindness. In the Hebrew, it's an important word. It's the word chesed. Uh, so maybe you can just turn to the person who's sitting next to you in your living room and you can just say chesed and try to you know, get some spittle on them as you say it you know, in a guttural sort of voice because they're in your germ circle anyway and coronavirus won't spread or if it would, they would have already gotten it. But this word chesed, it, 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 it's a special word referring to the covenant love of God. It's a word that God used to describe, to name the special committed relationship of solidarity that he has with his own people. And when God says practice justice, he sets alongside justice, mercy, covenant love has said, as if to say, look, uh, the kind of justice I'm calling you to is not a justice that operates at a distance from the people who need it most. It's a justice that actually enters into the, the, the poor school district or into the prisons or into the, the lives of the homeless and enters into that kind of world with them so that you can experience what they experience. I was listening to uh, Brian Stevenson, the lawyer who I referred to earlier, and he said, look, he said, if you want to do justice, it means proximity with those who need justice the most. It means getting close to them. It means living among them. You know, I, I over the last couple of years, uh, my wife and I have engaged with uh, a family member who's, who's, who's really found herself in difficult straits and in just really difficult places. And we have found ourselves kind of getting involved in a world that we knew nothing about. And you know, there's something about kind of like getting into a world that humbles you. Because when you're looking at problems from a distance, you have all the answers. But actually, when you get into the complicated, complex, convoluted uh, systems where there is injustice and racism and where people who have money and influence and power are able to get uh, more justice than people who are poor and those who are... And when you get into the world of addiction and, and, and of mental illness and all kinds of, of worlds that are so complicated and difficult, it humbles you. Because you realize, like, I thought I had the answers, you know. It's like, it's like that book I, I remember I heard about when I first had kids. And uh, I, I remember hearing the story of a, of a psychologist who right out of graduating from, from his school, uh, he, he got a PhD in uh, therapy for families. And he didn't have any kids of himself, but he immediately wrote a book called Seven Keys to Effective Parenting. And uh, a couple years later, he had a child and um, he found that it was a little bit more difficult than that. So then he, he retitled his book, republished it under the heading, Five Tips for Effective Parenting. And then a couple years later, he had two or three more kids. And then finally, he wrote a book called Help Me, I'm Drowning. And, you know, that's kind of how it goes. 
You know, when you get into the real world of, of pain and problems, you start to realize like how complex stuff really is. I can remember when I was living back in Long Beach, uh, I befriended a man who was homeless and he had a background of where he had been incarcerated. And so he had that kind of on his record and, and he had addiction issues, but he was also a vet. And so he had PTSD and, and his situation was so difficult. And I remember as a 25-year-old getting into, and, and at first thinking like, I'm gonna go in and fix it. I'm gonna go figure out the problem and fix it. And you get into that world and you start realizing like, this is complicated stuff. And there's something about proximity that really helps you understand how to engage in justice in a way that is compassionate, that is merciful, that is understanding, and that's relational. And so this is kind of the fulsome picture of the biblical understanding of justice. It involves equal treatment under the law and advocacy, and it involves relationship, proximity. But I want you to see in this text a little bit more briefly now, uh, the partner of justice. So that's the fulsome kind of meaning of justice. And that's what we're called to engage in right now in this cultural moment is the church is to be an advocate of God's justice for equality and advocacy and, and relationship with people who are on the margins. And this is the church's calling. But I want you to see the partner of justice the partner of justice in our text is a close, intimate relationship with God. Notice what it says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love kindness, and he says, to walk humbly with your God. And here, Micah brings together two things that have been torn asunder in the evangelical church over the last hundred years. And it is a close, tight, personal, intimate relationship with God coupled with action in the world for justice. You know, as you look back kind of on uh, the history of Christianity in America, and especially really white Christianity in America, the same is not true of the black church in, in America. There's a different history and a different story. But at the turn of the 20th century, with the rise of biblical criticism and, and evolutionary biology and uh, uh, you know, the Enlightenment was kind of taking hold in certain institutions of higher learning. And in many cases, uh, Christianity experienced this great split between liberalism and fundamentalism. And liberalism essentially denied the supernatural, said God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, and that it's all metaphor, and that really what these stories are there is they're intended to lead us into active lives of love and justice and peace in this world. On the other hand, the fundamentalist said, no, 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 uh, no, no, Christianity is not about that. It's not about, you know, our work in this world now. Christianity is about getting to heaven when you die, and it's about entering into a personal relationship with Jesus here and now. And there was this division between two things that the Bible has always kept together. And that is a tight, intimate, personal relationship with God as our Father and active works of justice in this world. In fact, you could take it even further and you could say that until your work of justice that is in this world flows out of an intimate, deep connection with God, you will never have the strength you need in order to keep the work alive. 
I'm reading this book right now. I've shared with you, you know, the cross and the lynching tree. And there's a chapter in this book about Martin Luther King Jr. And one of the things that it points out is that very early on in Dr. King's life, he had this profound spiritual experience where he heard in a very audible way, the voice of God. And essentially what God told him was, Martin, I want you to speak up and I am with you always. And he, he talks about how this very personal, intimate encounter with God continued to spur him on and give him strength to keep speaking truth in the face of power, even to the end of his life, even to his martyrdom. And listen, until, you know, the advocates of justice, even in our world right now, you know, there's a whole movement of young people who are moving out more and more. And, you know, you look at, at the, the, the crowds of people at protests these days, and there's just tons of young people. It's a multi-ethnic bunch. And uh, there's a lot of young people out there. But what they need to learn from Dr. King and before Dr. King, they need to learn from Jesus and Micah and the biblical authors is that works of justice and love in this world are empowered and they are strengthened and they can flow out of an intimate relationship with God. And I think what, what my friends who, who have kind of abandoned the whole you know, social justice thing and said, no, the church is primarily about personal relationship, which I need, God need to remember is that love of God and love of neighbor is intimately connected. And you're not really loving your neighbor unless you are working for justice on their behalf. And this is what scripture teaches again and again and again. And so the partner of justice is a deep and intimate relationship with God. And so we've seen from this text something of the fulsome nature of justice, equal treatment, advocacy, uh, relational uh, experience and proximity with those who we serve. Uh, justice involves also a partner, and that partner is walking humbly with God. It is this deep and humble and intimate relationship with God. And listen, until you are walking humbly with God, you wind up being a very obnoxious, self-righteous kind of advocate who's looking negatively around the world at everyone else, who's not doing all the things you are doing or who don't care about things the way you care about them and those people and all of this whole thing. And that's just ugly stuff. But when you have a relationship with the triune God who is holy, 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 who is transcendent, you are broken before his presence and you walk into your work in the world in a posture of humility out of this deep and abiding and intimate connection with God. So we've seen something, Fulsome Nation, the partner of justice. But thirdly and finally, let me just talk to you for a minute about the power that we find for justice. So I mentioned how, you know, earlier in this text, he speaks of, you know, what can I do to bring, you know, to God to, in order to remedy this problem that I have with God? How, how can I reconcile my relationship with God? What, what gift can I give God that's gonna remedy the problem? And of course, God reveals to him, there is nothing that you can do. There is no sacrifice that you can offer. Even if you gave your firstborn, it's not enough. But of course, later in the biblical story, what we discover is that God actually gives his firstborn. And God sends his own son into this world to bring reconciliation between man and God. God comes into this world so that he might be proximate with us, 
so that he might bring restorative justice between creation and the Father. He enters into this world and he, he, he enters into solidarity with the poor and with the marginalized. He doesn't become part of the aristocrat, the, he doesn't become an aristocrat or nobility or royalty. Instead, he becomes a member of a family who doesn't even have enough money to offer the proper sacrifice. And so at his birth, they go offer two turtle doves, which is the, 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 the gift of the poor. He later says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be homeless. And at the end of his life, uh, the guards gamble over the garment from his back, which is the one piece of personal property that he died with. And of course, he enters into the God-forsakenness and the injustice that all those who have experienced oppression from governments uh, against in, in ways that have been unjust and just not right. He enters into that on the cross. He enters into the darkness so that he might break its power, so that he might bear the sin of the world in himself, so that you and I might be forgiven, so that our sin might be taken care of, so that we might be brought into a right relationship with God. And it's when you encounter that kind of generosity of God and his gift of mercy and grace and love in your life when you receive that and experience that again and again and again, you cannot and you will not be a force of division in this world who simply looks at the other side of the aisle and looks at people who are not like you and don't think like you about certain issues and you just want to fight and criticize. No, you're going to say, no, there's something more important for us to unite around. There's a cause here. There's a movement of God in this world of reconciliation and healing and justice. And he's invited us to be participants with him. And he has graciously invited us to himself to, to receive his own healing restorative work in our lives and to receive it by free grace and then to be agents and instruments of that gracious, healing, restorative, justice-bringing work in this world. And so may God empower us and may he give us the wisdom to look at our world that we see around us on the news all day long, to pray and to ask God, how can we be instruments in this world? And then to take steps in that direction. Join with me in prayer. Let's just pray that God would begin to do this work in us. Father, we come to you now and we ask, oh God, first and foremost, that you might open up our hearts and our minds to your grace and to your love. We pray, oh God, that you would also open up our eyes to our own self, to those places where we are blind and asleep and we are unaware of the experience and the stories of others all around us. Convict us when we make our snap judgments and criticisms without actually ever entering into the experience of others. And make us, oh God, a community that overflows with your love and your kindness and your chesed and your justice into this world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his honor and for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Amen.